He's one of the most influential names in African politics. Paul Kagame has ruled the small landlocked country of Rwanda for 23 years. The nation of 13 million has come a long way since the civil war and genocide in 1994. Rwanda's significant progress in education, technology, healthcare, and security has made the nation an African success story. But is living under Kagame's government an African utopia? And as his influence in the region expands, along with the country's geopolitical role, is Rwanda proving to be a disruptive force in the region? Some of the questions we put forward to the president of Rwanda as Paul Kagame talks to Al Jazeera. Paul Kagame, president of Rwanda, thanks so much for talking to Al Jazeera. You're welcome. You've been president of Rwanda for 23 years now, and the constitution has been changed, so you can be in place for another 10 years. And as history has shown us that, that individuals who are often in leadership for that long a period of time, sometimes it doesn't end well. How do you see the story of Rwanda proceeding after your leadership? Well, first of all, it's not just the individual that is being elected or that is there for those years. It's also a question of those who enable that person to be there for all that time. So it's an interaction of choices to make by various sections of our population. It's also, of course, a responsibility of the individual like me. But Rwandans are not just uh, lesser human beings, as one may think, when they are making that judgment. I think Rwandans are as able to do uh, things and make decisions as they find fit. So that's how I happen to be there. And uh, we have made investments as a country in our people. And uh, at the right time, there will always be somebody to step in. Part of the theory of leadership, I think, in Rwanda is the horrible 1994 genocide of Tutsis by Hutus, that terrible experience that in most societies might have led to disintegration of society. But it created a theory of strong centralized leadership to, to take Rwanda out of that. As you look forward, is that still the basis of leadership? Or do you need to legitimate your... Um, leadership in, in other institutions, in other, you know, national stories, if you will? Many things in our country are happening just uh, naturally. They take their own course, but of course they build on uh, a number of factors. What is clear is that uh, our society actually did disintegrate uh, in 1994, or even starting a few years before that. But when you had the genocide, uh, the society almost uh, uh, came to a halt and non-existent. So thereafter, we've been building from scratch, people have been coming together. And um, some of these things uh, are happening out of necessity, when you see the unit of the country that we've been building after that disintegration, if you see 
the individual roles played uh, across the society, the understanding of everybody's responsibility and uh, having actually ambitions uh, beyond uh, what anyone could have imagined. They come from simply saying, we sunk solo and uh, that's not where we should have been in the first place, but we are human beings, capable as anybody else, and we should do something for ourselves. Uh, and in any case, this cannot be addressed by anyone outside of Rwanda. People outside can contribute, but they cannot uh, substitute for Rwandans in addressing our uh, very complex problems. Well, let me ask you, you know, April 2024 is going to be the 30th anniversary of this horrible massacre of, of people. Um, a million people were killed in this genocide. What do you want the future headlines about Rwanda to be beyond that genocide? Well, we have to inevitably remember where we are coming from. That is the history of genocide. But we also have to focus on our future uh, of a united country, a prosperous country, a country that uh, can live, uh, allow its citizens to live normal lives, as we are beginning to see uh, in Rwanda. In uh, fact, if you are ignorant of what happened in our past and came to Rwanda, you would think uh, such a thing never happened. But uh, that is a journey we have to, to, to travel, and it's a long journey. But the end point we are driving to is to make sure that uh, there is stability, there is uh, freedom of everyone, there is uh, coexistence, there is, uh, above all, uh, social and economic development that uh, well, some other parts of the world have taken for granted. The last time I saw you when we were in Kigali, you said you woke up that morning and there was a coup in Gabon. And when you look at the coups that are happening, what do you feel is driving? I know each one of these is different in its own way, but what do you think the primary drivers of this political instability are? For me, it's very simple. And, uh, well, it stems from the fact that the world doesn't learn lessons. As you see, people don't even learn lessons about what happened in our country. What is happening across the countries where coups have been taking place. People should be asking themselves, are these coups just happening, or they're happening for a reason? And that is something that maybe has been ignored in the past for many years and hasn't been addressed. And that is really, what do you do for the development of these societies in these countries? Uh, you. And, and people have come to take it for granted mm. uh, that Africa is poor and therefore it must remain as such, which is not true because Africa is actually very rich, both in terms of natural resources, human capital, you can name it. I don't think there's any 
a geographical space in this world that is so endowed with such things to build on uh, as Africa. But in the end, it comes down to governance. How, how is Africa governed? How do countries govern themselves? And how, if they are doing that, are putting their people at the center of everything that is being done? So in the end, when you see a coup happening and uh, ordinary people move onto the street and are happier, jubilating, because of that, uh, it tells you something. It's not just a coup that people should look at and say, well, this is the beginning, this is the end. There is that story behind. But there is another question that must be raised. All of these, for example, developed countries who are heavily present in every country on our continent, doing all kinds of things, teaching people democracy, human rights, freedoms, then uh, in the end uh, uh, exploiting natural resources of the continent, making a lot of money, whether it is through companies or whatever is taking place. Sometimes countries, you know, are playing their part directly in this exploitation of these natural resources that should have brought wealth to our countries. Uh, so one would ask, so why, why are you there for 50 years and you are doing all kinds of things, business, all kinds of transactions? For you, you get better for it, but the people of countries where you are doing it remain impoverished, if not even getting worse. So this is a question that... Is that to the French? Must... Is that to the Belgians? Is that Have, to the Americans? Is it the Chinese? All of them. Absolutely. Why? Why Why would you be doing so things worth billions, tens of billions of dollars? Do you dollars? think there's a kind of neo-colonialism going on now in Africa? I think there is just total confusion from the beginning. I think colonialism never ended, really. It just changed forms. And, but, but I can't also blame others mm. just for it. I, I think we need to take responsibility ourselves as Africans. We, 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 why do we accept such a things to happen? Why do we have almost everything and that works to benefit others more than we benefit from them? There are different ways of correcting that. Why don't we do that? Uh, so, I mean, sometimes you, you may ex complain or you may blame the exploiter, but uh, even the exploited should be blamed. Because I mean, you've been saying that message for a long time. You were chair of the African Union and you were talking about picking uh, our, ourselves, meaning African nations, up by our bootstraps, not being dependent, you know, best and promising practices. Yeah. When you look at the African Union and you look at its inability to stop some of these coups and to kind of look at this broad challenge of the ongoing relationship with the West and China that's just complicated. Why is the African Union not more effective? Well, the African Union is not uh, more effective simply because 
the countries that make up this African Union ourselves, we have a problem. African Union becomes a reflection of the country's uh, problems uh, as we see every day in each country. Are other new organizations like ECOWAS making the AU less relevant? Not really, because ECOWAS was supposed to be, is a, a regional economic uh, entity. So it, it really doesn't make it irrelevant. It only say, maybe reflects the problems that uh, go across the continent. Therefore, as we want to reform the African Union, we also need to be thinking of how do we reform these economic communities mm. because these constitute uh, a smaller number of countries. You may say seven, ten, or doesn't matter the number, adding to 55. Right. It was a simpler way of saying if we reform the regional economic communities and their functioning well, then it makes it easier for the African Union, the central body that governs the continent, to do better. So we just had a G20 meeting in India, and, and Prime Minister Modi was uh, very proud of bringing the African Union as a member, as a permanent member of the G20. Do you feel that anything changes for Africa? Are you happy about that move, or do you find it, you know, surface surface noise. It's a big step. The fact that at least there is that acceptance that uh, Africa can be a member of G20, but it doesn't end there. Mm. We have to see how Africa itself performs well for itself, but how it uh, works well with the, the other members of G20. I think this is where the problem lies and Therefore, we, there is a lot of work to do to make sure that we are there in the G20 to contribute, but also to benefit, because Africa will always have something to offer. If only it was uh, conscious of that and figure out how best to offer what they, we have to in return for what we need from other people. Let me split this into, I'm just sort of interested, and you and I have talked about this before, about how you see Western influence in Africa. But I also want to know about the Rwanda story. And you, know, you participated uh, in the US-Africa Leaders Summit and America, the United States, other nations in Europe are trying to up their game. They're worried about China's influence. How do you see Western influence now, both in the continent and in your own country? Well, this is the question I think we have partly answered. Uh, there is going to be Western influence, or there is going to be some other influence. Mm. Uh, but it's going to be minus African influence. Mm -hmm. so, that, so meaning... So it's a zero sum. So this is what it looks like, mm. uh, sounds like, because other people have influence, Africa doesn't have influence. So that means Africa is just there to be influenced. By, and then, of course, the fights that go on over the continent, for, very obviously for what the continent has. I think my take on that is it should challenge us African leaders 
and Africans generally, mm. we can't permanently stay in this uh, position of a victim. Uh, in the end, by the way, who, when those powers that have influence, whenever they want, they turn Africa into perpetrators. So on one hand, we're either victims or we are pointed to as perpetrators of different crimes, things like that. Now, to weave in the story of Rwanda, we have to say we, we, we are good students of history ourselves. We learn from what has happened to us or what we see happening around us. And um, given what has happened to us, and uh, at the time we needed anybody's help, it didn't matter who that was. And the West having such a power to really bring to a halt what was happening in Rwanda, and they didn't. In fact, not only did they not do that, they even uh, doubled up on doing nothing. And uh, also in the background, part of the cause of what happened in Rwanda comes from the West. Mm. If you look at the colonial history and later on, even after when the country got independence and uh, the different, you know, uh, things that happened, irrespective of the presence of the West and influence or countries in Rwanda, tells us the story that, uh, you know what, we've got to really do everything for ourselves and improve our lives and be there to, you know, like any other country or people. And, uh, and in fact, it is the same era mirror image that we, we have in mind for even the whole continent. Why doesn't the continent say, no, 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 we, we cannot be like this for this too long. And uh, we, we need to have interaction with the rest of the world uh, and, and create that equality that is necessary for any human dignity and society. So one of those colonial legacies of, as I understand it, Belgium and Ger Germany and Rwanda was creating really distinctions inside your society between uh, Hutus and Tutsis creating, you know, based on height, based on nose, based on socioeconomic class. And, and one of the ongoing challenges in the region, you know, frankly, is ethnic hate, ethnic disdain in the region. And Congo and Uganda's leaders have said, Paul Kagame and Rwanda are stirring up uh, this ethnic hate and distinctions. What's your answer to that? And, and beyond that, what can neutralize and diffuse the kind of ethnic tension and exploitation of it by, ever, by whomever is doing it? Well, first of all, I, let me make a correction here. Actually, it is not uh, any president. It's not the president of Uganda or the president of uh, uh, Congo that has accused uh, Paul Kagame or Rwanda for doing anything. It actually has come from outside. It comes from the very 
powerful, they're very educated, they're very people who want to teach the rest of the world what to do and what not to do, they are the ones who are saying that, who have said that. It's not, it has not come from the region. But this is why I was saying we can't just blame others for our problems. Uh, maybe that's where the, that's the weakness we can point to. Mm. Why should we allow outsiders to plant these ideas of dividing us and, and we just uh, take them in and uh, move along with it? We shouldn't be doing that because if you look at the division in Rwanda or in Congo or the region and country having issues with another and then tribes across borders, you know, having problems. It's, it's something we can avoid. It's something we can address ourselves, irrespective of who is fueling it for whatever reason. Because I think, I, I, I have come to think that maybe some of these powers don't actually want stability for Africa because maybe when Africa becomes stable, then it develops to a level where they can no longer practice their influence, exercise that. The United Nations has a very unusual and complicated relationship with Rwanda. Uh, at a point of great peril, uh, the United Nations withdrew its forces from Rwanda. That's part of the genocide story. But Rwandans are also a very big presence in UN peacekeeping. Uh, operations and presence around the world, and particularly in Africa, but uh, you know, you've been in Haiti and other places. Is this going well? Do you think the UN peacekeeping operations in the United Nations an institution is doing a good job? The United Nations is this body that operates along the lines set by the powerful countries that uh, created it, and then all of us got involved. Like, as being members, but uh, have less voice than uh, some others, and that needs to be corrected. So I don't really want to say I'm blaming the UN, because it doesn't add up to anything. When you say you are blaming the UN, I don't know really what one is talking about, because the UN is just those powerful countries that operate within it and, and give it direction. And, yeah. So lessons learned from Rwanda is, and, and along which we try to operate by participating in the, the UN peace support missions. Mm. We're trying to prove a point that actually some of these things like happened in Rwanda can be stopped or can it be prevented, or can it be managed better, uh, even with uh, uh, few resources. Because like what the interventions we have made in different parts, we have made interventions in twofold. One under the UN, of course, mm. with getting involved in peace support operations. But we have also been involved with in bilateral uh, missions where we agree with the countries who have... So you're an optimist. This is a positive message. It is a positive, but up to a point, if people are able to learn lessons. 
And finally, you have a tradition now and culture with strong women in leadership, and that's part of the Rwanda story. Why do you think that's not as much the story across other African nations, and what might be done to change that? Well, it is the story across the continent. Many other countries, uh, even before we started doing what we are doing, we are talking about the same thing mm. of how to elevate uh, women uh, in of these societies to, to participate, to be, you know, like any other citizens of our countries. There was that story. Mm. But, but always the difference is made by do you follow through, do you implement, do you execute these plans and intentions and claims you make about uh, what you want to do for, for your people. This is the biggest difference. Women constitute 52% uh, of uh, close to that, 51 point something uh, of our population. Mm. How, how do you disregard 51% or 52% of your population and, and just say you will go with the other? It doesn't make sense. So th there is a logic, there is understanding, there is a commitment behind what everything we are doing. Well, Paul Kagame, President of Rwanda, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. It's a pleasure. Thank you.